0: Well, it's a bittersweet morning for me. Uh, I mentioned to Pastor John before he left on vacation that this week is to the week uh, one year uh, since I resigned my last pulpit at Gospel Community Church and since I stood behind a pulpit to exposit God's Word. Uh, it is an honor and a privilege and I thank you for the opportunity uh, to speak to you this morning and bring you God's Word. It's also bittersweet because of the subject matter that we are going to be dealing with this morning. Uh, If you would turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Jude, Uh, it is page number 1027 in your pew Bibles, if that is helpful, and as you are doing that, I'm going to ask God's grace upon this message. Lord, we thank you again for our ability to come before you this morning. I pray that you'd give me the words to speak and that you'd give this congregation the words to hear. Lord, bless us together today as we open your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The letter to Jude. We're going to read the first 11 verses this morning. Jude, verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own possession of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. I thought it appropriate this week, uh, after we just finished three months of Sunday morning fellowship class going through the subject of apologetics and defending the faith, that since I was going to have the opportunity uh, for the next two weeks to to preach to you, uh, that we would go through this book together because the book of Jude is one of the primary texts that we reference when doing the work of an apologist or someone who defends the faith. And here in this first half of the book of Jude, we give reasons, we are given reasons why we are to defend the faith. Now, the, the, the majority of messages that I have personally heard on the book of Jude normally center on verse 3. We've all heard that, and it's, it's, it's common for us to, to mention in godly conversations among brethren that we believe in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it's common to tell people that we need to contend for the faith but there's so much more in this book of Scripture than just contending for the faith and just that admonition. We're going to take a look verse by verse through these 11 verses this morning, and we're going to finish the book uh, next week. But as we go through here, let's, let's look at the deeper issues that, that Jude brings up. First, let's, let's look at the authority of the book. Who wrote this? Why are we listening? Why is this included in our Bibles? It says in verse 1 that Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Uh, on the, the ESV version of the Bible, which we have in our pews, uh, that that version of the Scripture says a servant. Uh, other other translations may say bondservant. But that word is slave. It's the Greek word doulos. And we've all probably heard sermons with Greek references to that. There have been books written, Uh Pastor John MacArthur wrote a book just called Slave. So Jude calls himself a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ in the first verse. And he references also that he is is the brother of James. That is a humble, humble thing for him to do. How many of you have siblings? I have a little brother. You realize that when he says that he's the brother of James, we're talking about James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. If you read in the book of Acts at the Jerusalem Council, it's the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. What does that mean about Jude? This is the half-brother of James, which also makes him the half-brother of Jesus. If he's the half-brother of Jesus and he calls himself Christ's slave, look, I've got a little brother, and he would never call himself my slave right? If you've got siblings, that's, that's the truth. It's a mark of incredible humility that, that Jude, the half-brother of Christ that would have grown up in a household where the Son of God was his elder brother, I couldn't imagine. Could, could you imagine having Jesus as a brother, having Joseph and Mary say to you, why can't you be more like Jesus? We're also told that originally Jesus' brothers did not believe Mark chapter 6 mentions specifically that that at first, Jesus' brothers and his family did not believe. It was only later that they came to understand who he really was. The Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church reject that Jude is the author of this book. They referred to him as perhaps a, a cousin of Jesus or another familial relation because they are committed to a doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. But from what we know from from church history, what we know from uh, what Jude has written in the beginning of this book, we're pretty certain. We're talking about the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. It's a great proof of the authority that we're about to read, because in humility and referencing who Jesus is, and not even referencing himself as Jesus' brother, but as the brother of James, We understand that the authority of this book is something solid that we can believe in. He's in the mix. He's right there in that first century church as a a leader and as someone who can personally testify about what he's about to say. He writes this book to those who are called, specifically. For us, we understand that for someone to be called does not necessarily mean that they are a part of the body of Christ. For many are called but few are chosen. But he continues that these are the beloved of God, those who have been kept in Jesus Christ. And then, as if to soften the blow that he's about to give, he asks that mercy and peace and love be multiplied to the audience. It's because he's about to enter into a very difficult conversation. In verse 3, we read the most familiar passage of the book of Jude, that, Beloved, though I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is not written to a general audience. This is written to the members of the church specifically. He references the beloved by God to distinguish them that are at enmity with God. So Jude writes, as an authoritative witness of the resurrection and the brother of Christ himself, that we are to contend among ourselves, among brethren. Why? Why would he write us, when he wants to write about a common salvation, he found it necessary to do something else? he establishes rapport with us he appeals for this contending and then he hits us with it what are we contending against verse four certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of god into sensuality and deny our master and lord jesus christ certain people have crept into the church unnoticed. If you've ever had a conversation with an unbeliever who is hostile to the faith that we proclaim, one of the things that they're likely to do, and you've probably faced it yourself, is to object on the basis of morals and behavior. They'll point to things like the child abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, or they'll pick out a a big, big evangelical name from some televised preacher that has fallen. And usually, what's it about? Maybe they got caught in a relationship with a secretary. We've all heard stories, and we may have also had family or even been a part of churches where that was a unfortunate occurrence that, that happened. Maybe it split the church. I've personally been involved in more than one church where a sexual scandal has happened in the high-ranking church leadership of the church and jude points to that specifically as one of the issues that we are to contend against he wants us to know that these are false converts and their perversions reveal them by several traits and examples that he is going to outline for us as we continue some of these examples are easy to understand some take a little bit more explanation we need to notice who has crept into the body. That's worth no, it's, it's worth saying that, that I'm not necessarily pointing the finger at anyone in our congregation. Uh, this morning we're speaking of the church universal. I'm also, I'm also not saying that we might not have someone in our church that, that fits these descriptions. Nevertheless, if we're going to identify these people, what are the markers? How can we defend against them? And what might we say to those people to confront them in love? Verse 5 through 7, we start these examples. It says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew that that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I come from a, a church background where there is some false doctrine. Some people who even go so far as to deny the Trinity. It's important that we understand by by this example of Jesus, both bringing people out of Egypt and destroying those who did not believe, that those ungodly people who we are identifying, who have crept into the church, are not fellow brothers. They are not simply misguided Christians who have false doctrine. Jude here identifies them with people who God destroys for not believing. What we learn from the example is that the people that left Egypt under the ministry of Moses and went out and wandered in the desert for forty years witnessed great miracles. They were first first hand eyewitnesses of the plagues in Egypt. And some incredible things that that can't be denied. They, They were wandering in the wilderness and following a pillar of fire by day. It's amazing to think that even when someone has those obvious, great, miraculous testimonies of the truth of who God is and why we should follow Him, that they still did not believe. There are many people who sit in congregations their entire lives They go all the way through a a, a catechism, or they they go through a confirmation, or, or or they serve in different roles in their churches, and they make it to the end of their lives, and they have never truly believed. It is not simply a matter of being a misguided Christian. We must mark these people as those who, if they do not repent, are in danger of destruction. This also destroys the, the popular argument that, that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. Have you ever heard that objection? There's lots of people that want to say that God is all about love, that Jesus just loves and He accepts people as they are, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't require people to, to, to keep the laws of the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament was a cruel bully with a bat waiting for somebody to mess up so that He could clobber them. Well, in, in the New Testament, Jesus is a God of love that doesn't care where you are or who you are or where you came from or what you've done. He still loves you as if God needed anything from the people that worship Him. That's not the case because here it identifies the same God of the Old Testament and the New, the same God that brought people out of, out of Egypt, destroyed those who did not believe. Folks, when Jesus comes back again, He comes with His name written on His thigh with a sword, and He comes to conquer. He comes to wipe out those who did not believe. Yes, Jesus is love, but He's also justice. And we can identify those people because of their sensuality. One of the the markers of apostasy As people begin to drift away from the faith that they were raised in, is this sensual desire. They have been chased and in a Christian home, they go through normal human changes and and, and they get revved up by our culture's enticing images on television and billboards. It's almost impossible not to be exposed to what really amounts to pornography And as people who have been raised in church are exposed more because they come into their own adulthood and go to college or get jobs, we can mark them and we can know that their conversion has not been real and true when they begin to depart from the faith and engage in sensuality and sexual acts outside of marriage. To further illustrate the point the very next verse, Verse 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This verse confirms the identity of the angels and the origin of demons. It relates the sin of the ungodly to the fall of angels. We know that the the justification of of the, the devil in the garden was that go ahead, eat, you will not surely die. It's, It's a deception, it's a lie. So if the sin of the ungodly, those people who are false brethren who have snuck into the church and sit beside us on Sunday mornings, we may identify them by both sensuality, and by pride and lies, like the angels who fell. Continuing there's these examples in verse 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by un- undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is perhaps the issue of our age. Uh, certainly of my generation, is the struggle against homosexuality. Uh, Just a week ago, we had an evening service that got quite heated uh, discussing our denomination's stance toward homosexuality and homosexual practice, homosexual desire. But make no mistake that this specifically not only refers to normal sensual desires between heterosexual people, specifically refers to unnatural desire we read in romans chapter one a a progression through stages of god giving people up to their corruption the first stage in in that romans chapter one passage that we just spent three months going through uh in in the sunday morning fellowship classes the, the very first thing is ungodly sexual expression the second thing is homosexuality. And the third thing, it says, all manner of evil. Do You see the progression here, once again in Jude, that we have a progression of ungodly behavior. But these are in reference, remember, specifically to people who have snuck in, unnoticed, within our own bodies of worship. Given over to their lusts, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah underwent a judgment of fire as an example. So, this example is parallel to the previous two of Egypt and the angels, and the pattern begins to emerge. They have a common destructive end when God exercises judgment. In verse 8 through 11, we have an explanation of the behavior of the ungodly and a pronouncement of of woe verse 8 says yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones oh there's that third point from romans chapter 1 here's the all manner of evil let's take this one thing at a time these people also the ungodly rely on their dreams Now, I come from a, what I call a Pentecostal-adjacent background. Uh, that means that I, I was a pastor for a while in, in, in the Assemblies of God church. Uh, I went to school at Pentecostal colleges. It was a very common place to hear people get up and testify or get up and even preach from the pulpit saying, I dreamed this dream. Or they would say, they would say things like, I have a word from the Lord for you I had a vision all of these were very common things that I heard and I can't tell you how many times that they missed the mark and that they did so sometimes with painful results my family my wife and I specifically we were hurt by people who proclaimed God's Word from their own dreams and visions. When they said they had a word from the Lord for us, they never opened their Bibles. They relied on their dreams. They relied on visions and supposed words from God that moved in their spirit and they felt like they needed to tell us something. And it led to about eight years for for my wife and I of, of Heartache and pain and searching and running from church to church trying to find relief from the guilt that we felt over not fulfilling these prophecies that were spoken over our lives. I still love many of those dear people who spoke falsely to me. But it was wrong for them to rely upon their dreams. That is a mark of an ungodly person who relies on their dreams and not the scripture, not the word of God. But not only do they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh. That is once again a, represent, a reference back to improper sexual behavior. My wife and I have a friend currently, right now, who is going through the, apost- the apostasy process. And guess where it started It started with unfaithfulness in her marriage. It's so easy. It's so easy to send in that way when your email address gets stolen on the internet and you get a a link sent to you to inappropriate content. And when you're cruising through a YouTube channel video and, and, and you get an unbelievably crass and obscene ad that we experienced even here in the church i was teaching downstairs through our apologetics class one morning and as a youtube video of a a sermon clip ended some of you might remember a very inappropriate commercial started before i could stop the video there is ample opportunity presented to the faithful to fall in this regard And it may be evidence that the people who engage in such are on their way out, are committing apostasy. They rely on the dreams, they defile the flesh, and they reject authority. Folks, isn't this what the modern homosexual and feminist movements do? They reject the natural authority, the way God created us. They claim that men can live as women and women can live as men. They want to regulate everyone so that everybody is is equal to everybody else, even though it's plainly obvious that, that, that we are different. They reject the authority of God upon their lives, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. What does that mean? I said previously that some of these examples are easier than others blaspheming the glorious ones in light of the very next verse where it talks about the archangel michael and just as in verse six it talks about the angels falling from their positions of authority we can safely say that blaspheming the glorious ones means misrepresenting the angels so that happens happens all the time matter of fact some of the biggest cults in america were started by people who claimed to have a vision given to them from an angel My wife and I met and got married in her home city of San Antonio, Texas. And when I was there in Bible college, near her house, they were constructing a Mormon temple. It was under construction for several years. It was an incredibly beautiful building. It was white marble and gold. And on the very peak of the steeple, they planted a gold statue of an angel blowing a trumpet. And it was a representation of the, the angel Moroni. Who supposedly appeared to Joseph Smith to reveal to him some golden plates, and it kicked off the entire Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Does the Scripture tell us anything about receiving messages from angels? we should immediately be drawn to Galatians chapter 1 because it's worth noting here that the Apostle Paul says that even if an angel appears preaching another gospel than the one that he has preached, that that person is to be anathema. How many cults and unhealthy obsessions have started with dreams, with visions, with sexual impropriety, or with encounters with angels. In response to this verse talking about blaspheming the glorious ones, verse 8, Jude uses an odd example to, to explain the proper behavior of angels. It says that when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now there's a there's a name for what we just read. This is called a hypoxlagomenon. This is a uh, it is a single instance of this in all of Scripture. This particular reference does not occur anywhere else. It may be um, referring to uh, uh, a pseudographical work of the first century that 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 people who are reading this may have been familiar with. Um, we're, we're given reference to what it's talking about. Of course, we know that when, when Moses died, we read in the book of Deuteronomy that, that his body was, was hidden. Um, we may assume that this is referring to something outside of the realm of human vision and understanding where uh, Michael, the archangel, and the devil were, were in some way arguing over what to do with Moses' body. We don't know the exact circumstances that this particular verse refers to. However, we can take from it that an angel's proper response is not to rebuke in their own name and their own power, but to say, the Lord rebuke you. Angels, we may discern from this scripture, do not have their own authority. They are messengers and witnesses of God. So so that if we ever receive a message from an angel and it contradicts what the Scripture says, we may safely assume that that angel is lying. This is in severe contrast also to many, in some circles within our... I, I use the term churches loosely who claim to be able to rebuke and cast out devils of their own authority. We've probably all by now seen clips of men like Kenneth Copeland on TV rebuking the COVID pandemic and saying things like, I rebuke you and I call you gone. How many times have we also heard people say, I claim this or I decree this or that let us take a page from Michael's book and not presume to rebuke on our own authority but like Michael rebuke on, on God's, God's behalf may the Lord rebuke not us so as we've read through here this, this kind of sounds like the resume of a televangelist And unfortunately, in my experience overseas, as I've gone to many different places doing mission work and teaching, that is the face of global global Christianity. It is is an unfortunate fact that people get on TV and they, they, they promise blessings in exchange for monetary contributions, but they are blaspheming the Holy Ones when they reference The angels and visions of heaven and visions of Christ. Some of the things are terribly blasphemous that we can hear on a regular basis that that people believe globally. But the ungodly, it says, blaspheme what they do not know and they will be destroyed by it. In a commentary by Jane Vernon McGee, he says they are intellectually arrogant, but they are spiritually ignorant. They blaspheme what they don't understand and they're destroyed like unreasoning animals by by things that they should understand naturally. Finally, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error, perished in Korah's rebellion. Rapid fire, these last three examples that were given, Cain rejected the right worship of God and offered God what he wanted rather than what God demanded. Balaam sold prophecy for profit as Balak enticed God's people to sin. Korah and 250 of his supporters tried to throw off God's appointed authorities of Moses and Aaron and they were burned alive by the consuming fire of God. But that didn't end it either. People who grumbled and complained about God's execution of 250 ungodly complainers resulted in a plague that killed an additional 14,700 additional people. You can read that account in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. So what should we take away from this? What is the application as we look through these unfortunate hallmarks of apostasy and ungodliness within the church that has snuck in unnoticed when we should have noticed. First, be on guard for false doctrine. Be careful what you read. Watch and allow your kids to be exposed to. Remember that these kinds of people have snuck in unnoticed. We ought to regularly evaluate resources and relationships to make sure that we remain faithful. We've all heard recent examples of people, even in our own camp, who have fallen from the grace of God into sensuality and and these other unfortunate things like Ravi Zacharias, Mark Driscoll, and even within the Presbyterian circles, Thule and Tevigian. Learn the signs of apostasy to better identify problems. Those people who desire to cast off authority, reliance on dreams, visions, or angels rather than God's Word perversion of the gospel for profit. Sensuality and improper sexuality are the justification thereof. Finally, examine yourselves. Have you thought or taught wrongly? Then repent and retract those teachings. I've had to do that myself if I'm bearing truthful witness before you today. I, I, I ministered in these kinds of churches. I, I preached these doctrines and there have been many nights when I've been on my knees and wept over my atrocious behavior. I did not know. I was ignorant. I'd been taught one thing and then I found out something different. So as you examine yourself, Repent. Retract. 2 Corinthians 13, 5-6 says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test.